You are now listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill. Today we're putting a spotlight on two MIT students, Rahul Ramakrishnan, who participated in the MIT India program, and Mercedes Riley, who presented a philosophy workshop for girls around the world. Only the students can speak on their experiences best, so let's get right into it. First up is Rahul. My name is Rahul, and I am an undergraduate at MIT in the Department of Material Science and Engineering. I am an American student of Indian origin, and I'd only ever visited India to see extended family before coming to MIT. During my time in college, however, I traveled to India for the first time professionally, and the difference between personal and professional travel in India shocked me, as I encountered a side of India I had never noticed before. Traveling with a professional group automatically marked me as foreign in India, which impacted not only the way I was treated, but also what I got to observe in-country. During personal travel, I had never thought about what I did not see, and never explored the complexity of feeling like a stranger in your country of ancestry. Going to my country of heritage added nuance to the way in which I view myself as an Indian American. Alongside peers who identify similarly with related experiences, I want to explore that topic of complex identity in the context of traveling to India professionally on behalf of MIT. I'm joined by three recent MIT graduates, all of whom identify as Indian American and travel to India professionally through programs sponsored by Misty India. I'd first like to turn to Pooja Reddy, a graduate of MIT's class of 2020 in the Department of Material Science and Engineering. Pooja was born in the United States and was recently awarded a Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowship for New Americans, which honors the contributions of immigrants and children of immigrants to the United States through investment and graduate education of 30 students each year. Pooja will be continuing her academics at Stanford to pursue a PhD in material science. Here's Pooja to tell us more about the purpose of her trip to India. So a previous instructor of mine wanted to organize a trip because he works a lot with people with disabilities and kind of designing technology, assistive technology to help improve their lives. And he organized this trip with people he knew who were working with that in that field in India and Delhi and Hyderabad and um, Mumbai. And with a group of students, we would go and essentially, on some days, we would basically visit and learn from people, both experts who are working to help people with disabilities, also people with disabilities themselves and learn about, you know, what helps them and what they need. And then other days we would help run kind of like a hackathon where you like, we try to like design solutions with other Indian college students or other people who are just interested in that industry in India. So it was a mixture of different groups. Yeah, awesome to hear. Pramotha Karnati, a graduate of MIT's class of 2020 in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, was on the same trip as Pooja. During her time at MIT, Pramoda has served as co-captain of MIT's Bhangra team, as well as president of the South Asian Association of Students Organization, or SAS. I'll turn it over to Pramoda to add any additional detail. But obviously when you're building something for someone with a visual impairment in Boston, you don't think about um, the, the way the streets can be in India, which is just like way more people, right? Like there's so many more people, there's, the roads are different, there's like a lot more cars and they're honking everywhere and all that kind of stuff. So it's just, it was like very interesting to think about how do you design for assistive technologies 
there and here. So how do you think about like how to make them universal? Um, so those are the kind of things we talked about with the students there, um, with the with the professionals that were there at the the I Institute project for Kosh IIT. It was probably one of the most eye-opening experiences I've had at MIT. So I'm super grateful that I went there. For context, Project Prakash is an NGO founded by Dr. Pawan Sinha, Professor of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at MIT. Dr. Sinha is also the MIT India Faculty Director. IIT Delhi is one of a handful of public technical and research universities under the IIT name, which itself stands for Indian Institute of Technology. Neil Das, another member of MIT's Class of 2020 from the Department of Mechanical Engineering, traveled to India for a full summer to work at Shell in Bangalore. Neil was born and raised in Massachusetts, and like Pramoda and Pooja, this was his first time visiting India in a professional capacity. I got to do an internship through Misty India, where I was going to be interning at Shell. And there were maybe six of us, I think, who went that summer. So I think it was like also co-sponsored through the MIT Energy Initiative. So I think a lot of the projects were somewhat related to the environment. But yeah, so that was the 12-week internship that I was, that I was doing there. While Neil, Pooja, and Pramoda all identify as Indian American, they have all interacted with Indian culture in different ways growing up. Let's start with Pramoda. Growing up, my parents always did a great job of making sure that we were true to our culture and our religion and things like that. So, I mean, I grew up with lots of our Indian traditions and Hindu traditions. We celebrated every single festival, every single holiday, every single religious event. Like, fall wouldn't be fall without a Ganesh Puja, right? Like, everything happens for a reason and my parents always brought us up like that so I think knowing like what our values were where we come from who we are what we believe in and culture as a whole and obviously the food my mom cooks some great food and I always grew up eating that so that was that was pretty great what about you Pooja so technically my first language is Telugu which is, you know, spoken in Andhra Pradesh. And uh, because growing up, my, so my parents would speak to me. And then when I went to kindergarten, you know, exposed to other Americans and like English became the language I spoke. And now I struggle to speak Telugu, but I can understand perfectly. Growing up, we also like a lot of our books were kind of like, do you know, like the the comics, like the Panchatantra and like the Ashoka yeah. comics that they have for like mythology and stuff. That was actually yeah. a huge way I learned so much Indian mythology was just reading those comic books. Like they had ones on like Akbar and Birbal and they had like Ramayana and Krishna and all those things. Because growing up, like, you know, my mom would do pujas and we'd go to temple, but not very, very often, you know, on bigger holidays like Diwali and New Year's, things like that. And in the summers, I would go visit India, usually every other year or every year when I was really little. And what about you, Neil? I mean, definitely, I had a good experience through food. My grandma, I guess grandma specifically, made very good food growing up. So I was always excited to go to their house and have pani puris like all the time um, and alu prantas. Uh, language, I did not, I do not speak Hindi. So I guess I'm a little bit disconnected in that regard because a lot of my family, especially in India, speaks Hindi, although they also speak English. So it's not that hard to communicate with them. I didn't grow up very religious. I'd maybe go to temple like once every year or every other year or something like that. So I know you went to India in the summer of 2017 and specifically to Bangalore. 
So, can you kind of just set the scene for me when you emerge from the airport in Bangalore? Like, what adjectives would you use to describe it? So, it's interesting because I feel like Bangalore is normally very temperate, but as soon as we got out of the gate, it felt very hot and humid. And then, like, when we were driving, we there like there's like this row of palm trees, I think, kind of near the airport. So, it just it felt very different immediately. It felt, I mean, it felt kind of tropical, which is not really what Bangalore feels like, just a different climate. Yeah, because normally it's feel like somewhere between 75 to 85 degrees. Yeah, it was basically 75 degrees every day when I was there. It was like amazing. And there was like basically no monsoon that summer, which is really bad for like farmers and for the environment. But um, for us, it was very nice. Yeah. And uh, Pramoda, I know you arrived in January in Delhi, which I'm sure has a very different feel. It was really crazy. We landed, the airport was busting with people. There was random people like selling samosas. And I was like, man, I, I miss like being able to just get a samosa randomly anywhere, right? Like you don't really see that here. It was just a lot, I think. And I, that, that's usually what I think about when I think of India. It's just like like so much. There's like so many people, so many noises, so much, so many things happening. And this was at 2 a.m. even, like it wasn't even at like 4 p.m. or something. So we, we got into our taxi cab and our driver was super nice and we got back to our hotel and, and my roommate and I just packed Given that you were in India, did you ever feel that it was possible to blend into your surroundings in a way not possible in the U.S.? Let's start with Neil. Not so much during the internship because whenever I was traveling i was with my tall white blonde polish friends and other like asian americans so i felt like when i was in the group i kind of stuck out if i was like alone i think i could kind of blend in until i opened my mouth and they heard my accent but then like once i was traveling with family afterwards then it was easier to blend in as long as i didn't speak like i just kind of looked like the rest of them Thanks, Neil. What about you, Pooja? I mean, when people see us and we're in a group, they know that we're not from there. And also, anytime people hear me speak, they know I'm not Indian Indian. But there's like that, you've experienced this, like auto drivers have like multiple prices. There's like an Indian Indian price, there's like a foreigner price, and then there's like the Indian who's foreigner price that's in the middle. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like I oftentimes would become like the de facto like person who ordered, person who like just like the face of the group, which I understood because it's like I, I also, I don't know if you do this, but I will change my accent to be more Indian when I speak in India just because it's easier for them to understand. It's just a habit I've gotten into. So it's kind of like I would be the translator. I would be like, you know, order the food. I would be like telling the people where to go, which I didn't mind because I'm sure people appreciated having someone with a little bit more knowledge. Thanks, Pooja. What about you, Pramoda? We, we would get such interesting looks when we walked around as a group of people in India because like you, you see like all of these Indians who are very homogenous and then you see like this group of mismatched MIT students and there's like, like a Caucasian person, an Indian person, an Asian person, uh, an African-American person and you're like, what? who are they? Like we, we got like such interesting looks from people because of how different we like of the makeup that we were. But I think the best part about the trip was everyone was super open to the culture and like learning more about India, like learning about who it is that we were working with. It was a really great way to experience India with these people. Pooja, can you think of any other times that the demographic makeup of the group impacted the way that you were treated? 
I think a big thing on that group was most of us were women, most of the MIT students who went. And a lot of the people we were working with in these um, hackathons or fairs were a lot of college students, but engineering college students, which meant most of them were all male. And it was fascinating and also kind of infuriating how they didn't know how to talk to women who were as competent, if not more competent than they were. And it was very interesting to see their experiences. And I think like at MIT, at least in our major, you're also course three, it's very gender balanced, if not more female heavy. And like, I've never felt like I had to fight louder compared to all my peers. And like in India, I think that having a mostly female group, sometimes a lot of us were getting frustrated with how much more loudly we had to voice our opinions or how oftentimes people like, because a lot of guys in India just don't know how to talk to girls too, because a lot of them go to all boys schools and they go to places where like they just, they just have not chances to interact. So that was one thing. For context, Course 3 refers to the Department of Material Science and Engineering at MIT. I feel like when I went to India, which was for research back in 2019, I went with a group that was very stereotypically American-looking and that they were Caucasian, and that definitely impacted the way that I felt and the way that we were treated. Definitely at more upscale venues like hotels and restaurants, I felt like we were treated better than had we been locals. But at street markets and those types of environments, we were definitely getting ripped off, including with auto rickshaws. We also definitely got stared at quite a bit, being a group of people who did not look like Indian locals. And I, in particular, was not being stared at, I don't believe, but it was really more my colleagues that were. So Pooja, considering that this trip is now behind you, do you feel like you have any new additions in thinking about your own identity? Whether that's something that leans more American, leans more Indian, or is a hybrid of the two? I think a role I had not played before the trip I went on was kind of being a real-time educator on like Indian culture or like kind of being in a space where I actually had the knowledge to explain things to people or um, where they like would turn to me if they needed to know how something was going to work. Um, and it didn't feel like a burden, like I enjoyed doing it, which if I had been asked to that before, I would be annoyed because I'd be like, oh, I'm American. You know, I, when I was younger, I never thought of myself as Indian. I, I'd be like, oh, I don't want to do this. But I think um, well, now that I have a more appreciation for it, I actually enjoy sharing it and teaching that culture to other people and helping them appreciate it more or understand it more, especially because it's so different from here. Yeah, that sense of connection and understanding is definitely complicated as an Indian American in India. But I would imagine that shared language helps in some of those situations. Uh, Pramoda, did you witness this at all when you visited Andhra Pradesh, which I know is your ancestral homeland? I remember this one point in which um, I and a friend from the from the group, we, we were all in like focus groups basically in the room and like we were talking to a couple of, I think they were like young boys who had visual impairments and they were sort of talking about their experiences while learning. And like like you said, I can speak Telugu, right? And so there was like something that this person was trying to say in, in English and I was like, oh, is it like this? And I, I started speaking to them in Telugu and um, and the guy was like, oh, Akka, like, are you, are you with Telugu? And I was like, yeah, I am. And so then like I had this like very fluent, like easy conversation with these, these three guys. And then they were like, Akka, it makes me so happy that that you went to the US but you also came back and you're trying to help us and I was like really special right and so I felt like I had this instant connection with anybody that I can can talk to when I went there so like yeah I, I think like the race barrier definitely just sort of goes down I got to visit some really cool temples 
flowers there and I really enjoyed that. I don't know, there's just like kind of something about being in like your ancestral country that feels nice. I'm not also not a very religious person, but I, I think I did just like really enjoy being in the temples, just kind of being surrounded by other Indian people, just like praying and um, chanting and stuff. So Pramoda, when you arrived back in the US, did you feel relieved at all? Did you feel scared? Did you feel like you were back home the same way that you'd felt at home when you arrived in India? I always feel like this whenever I come back from India and I always feel I'm missing something. Every single time that I've come back, it takes like probably two to three days to a week to get used to like silence and um, the lack of people and like the lack of people doting over you. Cause you know how Indians are like, if you go to anybody's house, they're like, oh my God, like, thank you for coming. Like, do you want water? Do you want biscuits? Do you want this? Do you want that? Like, like people don't do that here, right? So it, like, it felt nice to be home, obviously. Like I was like, I'm home. I'm coming back to MIT. I'm coming back to my parents, my family, my friends, my like my lifestyle. I would say I was, uh, I was relieved for multiple reasons. One, I had just been like, away from my home for like three months. So I was happy to be back. I also been working. So I was happy just to like not be working and to return home. And then I had like a very busy vacation at the end of my family. And so those 10 days were like very busy. So also just ready to go home after that. So a combination of all of the things made me pretty happy to go home. Over the course of my life, I've gained a larger respect for India, I think. And also I have seen more of how it has affected my life and who I am now. But I mean, the States and like America and Boston will like always be what I consider to be my home. I remember after our trip, actually, me and two other friends, two course threes, actually, the three of us went to Mumbai for four days because we were like, you know, we might as well do something relaxing. And that was just like a different way to be able to see India and see a city and show people around because we weren't there to work. We we're more there just to go around and observe and see. I think that was nice. It was nice to show people a more um, real view of India rather than just hotels or spaces like that. I think needless to say, identity remains very complicated, especially when you are a member of the diaspora visiting your country of heritage, because there is a feeling of belonging for sure in some ways, but in many ways you may not feel like you belong. You may feel like you're more connected to your adopted country. I personally definitely feel more comfortable and at home in the United States, but there's a sense of connection and belonging that I got in India that I've never felt in the United States. It honestly took just one professional research trip to make me see that so explicitly in a way that over 20 years of personal travel had not. Thank you so much, Neil, Pooja, Pramoda, for speaking with me today. Today's background music is provided courtesy of the HSBC Sounds of Home series. And signing off, this is Rahul Ramakrishnan. Thank you. Daddy, why is the sky blue? Well, because Mother Nature wanted to match your pretty little eyes. Nope, not even close. See, all colors have wavelengths that are diffused by oxygen and nitrogen. 
Since blue has the shortest wavelength, it's diffused up to 10 times more. So the human eye sees more of it than any other color. That's why the sky looks blue, Daddy. Who in the world taught you that? Mommy. By sixth grade, too many girls lose interest in math and science. And in just a few short years, almost all of the jobs they'll want will depend on having these skills. So keep her interest alive any way you can. Daddy, do you know why the concept of odd and even is a philosophical illusion? Why don't you tell me? For more information and ideas, visit www.girlsgotech.org. Remember, it's her future. Do the math. A public service message brought to you by Girl Scouts of the USA and the Ad Council. Mercedes Riley is an MIT student double majoring in brain and cognitive sciences and philosophy. Through Girl Up, a leadership development program, she conducted a philosophy workshop on the ethics of artificial intelligence for an international audience of girls. One of the goals of the workshop was to inspire the girls to enter STEM fields, which is no easy feat given gender biases. Not only was it educational for the girls, Mercedes learned a few lessons herself. Okay, Mercedes Riley, welcome to the Missy Radio podcast, and thank you for being here. Um, so you recently had the opportunity to uh, run a workshop on um, ethics and AI, artificial intelligence, um, with the YSI camp, which is part of the Girl Up organization. Can you just quickly describe what YSI is and how it fits into Girl Up? Yeah, awesome. So uh, first of all, thank you, Ari, for having me here today. And YSI is a girls' STEAM camp, and it's an elite opportunity for girls in high school from around the world. So for the program that I ran, we had girls from the U.S., Morocco, and the Ivory Coast um, coming together and exploring their interest in STEM for two weeks. And unfortunately, this year, of course, it was a virtual experience, but it was still really fun to see the lineup of um, really influential people in the STEM industry. So a lot of women scientists, engineers, the speaker before me was, um, I believe, working at NASA. And then I was lucky enough to participate and teach more of a workshop version. So the girls were interacting, asking their own questions. I was a little bit more lecture based. Um, yeah, and so it's meant in general just to increase interest in STEM in girls and also provide them with the leadership and like more of a moral understanding of entering the field, um, especially because like, as we know, there is a like lower percentage of women in STEM fields. So probably about one fourth of STEM jobs are held by women. So this is why they Girl Up decided to focus specifically on uh, women in STEM for this program. Uh, thanks, and we'll, we'll come back to that uh, in a moment, but just to touch on first, um, what what made you so interested in a AI and ethics workshop and how does it relate to your studies at MIT? I know you, you've just graduated. Uh, maybe you can talk about how it fits in and what you studied. Yeah, so it was really nice, uh, nicely fit into what I studied. So I came to MIT thinking that I wanted to study math. But as I explained to the girls in the seminar, um, I found it very theoretical for me at MIT. And I realized that I really wanted something 
felt it was pairing with real life and helped me to think through real life problems, which I'm sure math does for some people, but it wasn't as obvious to me. And so I switched into brain and cognitive science because it was helping me to understand how the mind works, how humans um, behave, as well as learn about artificial intelligence in ways that were mimicking human intelligence. Um, and so that was really exciting to me. But I also was really interested in humanities and um, philosophy ended up being a minor that turned into a major. And that was just really focusing on um, more ethical questions, things like the trolley problem. Um, and I got to take a very cool class called Ethics in Technology, more ethical uh, training in ethics, um, although not super, super pro at ethics. Um, it's just an interest of mine. But I've also had a lot of experience in the business sector. And I understand that like the incentives um, driving businesses and tech companies, it's often profit. Um, and you can very easily get lost in that as a business. Um, and the ethical questions that I'm considering and that I presented to the Girl Up participants are very often not thought about in, because you're, they're chasing profit instead. So maybe we can get into more examples later on or take clips from. Well, yeah, but so you, yeah. you brought up a very a real world trolley example in your, yeah. in your workshop, which is the case of the self-driving Uber that hit somebody, which, mm -hmm. you know, made it the news rounds some years ago. Um, and as you presented it to them and asked them, you know, how they thought they would have handled it, was it, was it the, you know, how, whose fault was it, for example? You know, what surprised you about their responses? Yeah, that's a great question. So for some more color, the questions and the kind of situation that I posed to the participants was um, that imagine they work for Uber in the, basically in the advanced technologies group, which is creating the algorithm behind the self-driving car for Uber. And um, there's a lot of uh, pressure for these engineers by their boss and by the new CEO to make a smooth riding experience. But in order to make the smoother riding experience, they have to remove emergency braking features, um, which of course comes with the dangerous safety trade-offs. So you're kind of stuck in between these two things. Um, you have to decide what to do. I found that almost everyone said A, which the option A was for disabling the, um, oh, sorry, almost no one chose A. Um, and they mostly chose C, which was, wait, yeah, keeping the emergency braking feature and telling their boss that they disagree with his decision, which is risky, but the most ethical decision. Um, and so that was surprising because I've actually run this lecture at one other um, leadership program which um, is through Misty India actually. And um, a lot of them had different answers. So I, so I saw a bigger distribution of answers from that participant group, but from Girl Up, I saw almost everyone getting the right answer here. So that was first of all, surprising. And then we had a second poll right after that. Um, but is and, there actually a right answer? And uh, no, that's, I mean, <laughs> I think that that's the right answer in terms of like the very, like philosophical, ethical implication. But of course, like the right answer changes based on the situation. If I was telling them how, if like your family was depending on you and you would lose your job and you can't, you, 
it's just so risky for you personally, it makes sense why people may be choosing to do what their boss says. And people can also kind of reason away the responsibility because their boss is responsible for telling them what to do. Like that's kind of the function of a boss. So um, of course it's a very, very hard question, but I was surprised with the courage that the Girl Up participants had in order to choose the one that's the hardest, but has the best like real world impact, I guess, if you could say. Okay. And when, when you ran the session in India, the participants yeah. were mostly Indian, I'm guessing? Yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, there is a, you would think there is some, um, there are some cultural correlations. Like if yeah. the example was an old person versus a young person, right? I think in some cultures, older people, like in, in the US, we would probably say, just kill the old person, save the young yeah. person. But in other cultures where elders are more highly venerated, you would think that maybe they would save the elderly person. Very true, very true. Interesting. Yeah, there's, there was um, the, we talked about this a little bit in a Zoom call before, but the um, the the tr the moral machine um, experiment run by MIT's Media Lab, I believe, mm -hmm. actually asked these this question like across groups, and you're completely right. The answer did depend upon um, kind of the cultural setting uh, that the participants were in. So yeah, that's totally true. And um, as we got to the next question in the poll, which was who was responsible for the death of the pedestrian that the um, self-driving car caused. Um, we got very different responses between uh, the India participants and the Girl Up participants as well. So um, the India oh, participants. Yeah. yeah, tell me more about that. Yeah, so the question was, who was responsible for the pedestrian's death? And A was the person in the driver's seat and B was the company testing the car's safety, and C was the engineers of the AI system. So this was, um, if I can explain a little more, the person in the driver's seat was there, um, just meant to kind of oversee everything, but they weren't fully meant to be driving. Like it wasn't their job to have their hand on the wheel or anything. They're meant to be kind of taking in data, but the person who actually was in the car was watching I think a Hulu show. So they were definitely not doing what they were supposed to be doing. So in a sense, um, you could say they're responsible. Um, and then the second option was the company testing the car safety. So Uber still has third party testers come in and check off that the safety uh, requirements are met. And you could say they're responsible because they should have said that um, the car was not safe enough for example. And then finally, C would be the engineers of the AI system. Um, and that would be the people who were making the decisions, for example, um, the, the algorithmic, decisions. the algorithmic decision makers. Yeah, exactly. So um, I actually think I had changed the questions a little bit between the two sessions, but the, the heart of it was the same. Um, and I'm pretty sure Girl Up, we can pull it for sure, but said all of the above, um, as well as the engineers, whereas those in India, I think straight away from the engineers of the AI system. Um, this is another like question where there's really no easy answer here. And so I think just underscoring that in a small sense, all of them are responsible and should be all like aware of the implications of their actions at every point in time. So um, girl up participants definitely were 
keen to that and they really understood what was going on. So it made my job easier. It's interesting, you know, from when I, when I was watching your session, mm-hmm. I was thinking to myself, oh, I would choose A. I would choose <laughs> the person who is supposed to be there as like um, a stop measure just in case something goes wrong and who's watching Hulu. <laughs> yeah, I know. But 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 you know, obviously they're they're they exist within the system where there were multiple failures. But yeah, um it's easy it's easiest to point a finger at that person and say you weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing. Yeah. So it is interesting that your the girls in India had a very different view and then it was much more varied among the this more broader spectrum of international participants <laughs> and Americans. Yeah, that was so interesting. Um, for me to see just how different people look at this problem. And I actually have, I think I, I shared with the girl participants this story because I have a friend, a pretty close friend, um, who works in the Uber <laughs> Autonomous um, Adv- Advanced Technologies Group working on the engineering behind the self-driving car. And I reached out to him and I was like, so did you read this article? Like, are you aware of what's going on? And he's like, of course I'm aware. Um, <laughs> he's like, things are even worse um, than maybe they seem, but I can't tell you much. It's very secretive. I was like, that seems like the problem. Um, but I was just, I was just explaining to him kind of the backbone of my lecture for, for Girl Up. And, and um, he was kind of saying that the perspective of an engineer, he just loves engineering. He just loves working on these very cool problems. He doesn't think about how they're being used. I was saying, look, it killed someone. Um, and he also has worked at other like very up and coming um, brain machine interface companies, which again, are have a lot of ethical questions going on around there. And and he, he said like across all his jobs, he's not thinking of how they're being used. He just thinks it's a really cool problem to work on. And I think I have a very different perspective. And so to hear that side of the story and to see just, he's an incredible engineer, like very smart and has solved a lot of issues and created a lot of change. But to hear that maybe he wasn't always thinking about what he was doing and where that was going down the line, um, kind of, like underscores the point that we're trying to make with the presentation is that sometimes the engineers, um, whether it's their boss or whether it's just, they're not thinking of the down the line effects of what they're building um, because it's a hard job. There's a lot to think about and maybe the ethical questions come last um, in some situations. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. I'm glad you said this because this really is the heart of why Misty exists. I really? mean, <laughs> expanding, you know, because most, most students at MIT are studying engineering yeah um or in a science field obviously there are that's not everyone but accounts for the majority mm-hmm. and we want to make sure that their ex- their horizons are expanded to a point where they're in touch with the fact that they are engineering for real people and have real consequences and our belief is that through these international experiences and exchanges Mm-hmm. Um, they can be much more in touch with that, broaden their perspectives. Don't not have such a myopic view of let's just engineer this solution. Um, so there are some other uh, really interesting examples you brought up. Mm-hmm. For example, the biases in facial recognition, darker skin tones. Um, 
which is pretty well known at this point and uh, researched heavily at MIT. What were some of the things that surprised you about um, some of the responses around that? Anything interesting there? So I started the topic by sharing about um, a video from the Algorithmic Justice League founder, Joy, who she is very, very cool. Um, And she has a, she's getting or has gotten a PhD at MIT. And, um, and I was so surprised because the participants knew of her. They were like, oh, we love Joy. Like, oh, oh that's, that's great. great. Um, yeah, I was like, oh, this makes it easy. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I had just found the video like right before, a few days before. And I was like, this is perfect because she's such a great role model. The Algorithmic Justice League is doing so many great things in the exact space of um, artificial intelligence and AI or, and ethics. So that's why I thought it would be great for them to actually hear it from her. So she introduced the topic. Um, and they had already been familiar with her, but let me think. So as you ended the session, you started asking the students to think of examples of technologies that could bring ethical dilemmas in their daily lives, technologies that they use and that um, surround them wherever they are. And so how did they reflect on that question? What are some of the things that they thought of and what were some of the things Uh, they suggested in terms of mitigating those dilemmas? Yeah, awesome. So that question was two parts. And the first one would be what technologies did they think of and what types of ethical dilemmas were there? Um, And for that question, I actually broke that into two smaller questions because in my experience, asking it as itself um, to the India participants first was a little difficult because it's it's not always directly evident when you're just thinking in general of an ethical issue with technology. You don't, it doesn't come straight to mind sometimes. And so instead what we first did was think about technologies uh, they use every day. So that's a very easy question to answer. Um, And then we could go further into thinking about what's wrong with them. So the answers I got to that were um, a lot of phones used, um, Instagram, TVs, uh, someone mentioned a dishwasher, uh, voice <laughs> recognition too. So, so then of those, we were asked the secondary question, which was, um, can you think of any biases or ethical issues that could arise within those technologies that you're using every day? Um, and for that, they did an awesome job. They said, um, for phones, they just mentioned that there could be bias within phones, which um, I went into how maybe the bias would be surrounding those who have access and those who do not have access. So um, let's say a certain job like requires a phone interview or something. Um, Those with phones will have a leg up and those without phones may be excluded from that certain job. And then they were saying um, spreading fake news was an ethical issue. And um, I totally agree with them here. And, and it would be interesting to find out what country the, um, the participant who listed this was from, but um, definitely we see a lot of that, not only fake news being hyped up and amped up through algorithms, but um, just kind of a filtering of the news sources we see with maybe our Google search results or our Facebook advertisements um, that skew in one direction. So once maybe the algorithm learns our preferences, it, it, oftentimes continues to spit out similar um, 
similar news articles to those that we've already read, which, which might actually continue a tunnel vision effect and keep us reading and continuing our own perspectives and maybe be more closed off and unaware of the other's perspectives. Um, so that was like a very deep and great point that they had there. So another answer we had was video games for kids' mental health, which my parents never let me play video games. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, I, th I think there have been studies um, about that maybe like more violent video games technology can, can be um, a little bit um, influential in, in, in child development. Uh, and then the, some of my favorites were around voice recording. And so we had previously talked about in the lecture about facial recognition bias and how it, um, it is worse at determining female and those people with color, um, it's worse at seeing their faces. And so I think the participants did an awesome job at transferring that exact type of template into the voice um, recording and voice recognition space and to make sure to hear different languages equally and to understand different accents equally. So making sure that not only English is the only voice recognition technology available, but every, every language um, available so that no group is, is unfairly left out of that um, technology. And another one that they had was voice recording consent, which is a very big issue as well. So um, we talked about maybe how Siri, um, you're giving access to uh, Apple to, to, to hear the voice content that, that you're talking about when your phone's just lying on the side and, and being aware and, and making sure that um, Apple and other tech companies are, are asking your consent before taking your data and taking the things that you say unfairly. So making sure that consent is always given. But, um, and then, so your second, the second part of your question, how these ethical like issues could be mitigated. And um, the first and foremost thing is just to, to make sure you're always thinking about them as an engineer or someone um, working within these companies. Uh, and of course that only works if you work at the company. So uh, also learning as a consumer to be aware and to, to speak up about these things. But um, some types of groups of things that you could do beyond that would be for within the company, having a third party track progress and make sure that safety uh, features are met and just making sure from an unbiased perspective that you are following the following ethical guidelines. Um, and so that would be similar to the Uber um, self-driving car being checked by an outside engineer group. Um, even though it didn't solve the crisis that we talked about it, hopefully in the future would be better at um, kind of putting, putting brakes on the engineers um, in an unbiased way because they aren't directly driven by the same profit in the same way that the company is. So a secondary um, way to be mitigated that the girls brought up would be um, educating the coworkers on your team, which is, it sounds very simple, but I think um, that's a great point and often overlooked is just talking about these issues. Um, I heard from a friend that within Microsoft, um, there's like a space where people from across the company can just post in like a centralized system and just 
ask each other questions and talk about issues. And that's actually the genesis of their own code of ethics around um, AI and technology. It began with people just talking in the group about ethical issues. And so educating coworkers can lead to further developments and team teaming up and collaborating and actually getting real results down the line. So I think that was a great point. And then finally, they said having diverse teams of people to begin with, which um, we also talked about the example of Amazon having a algorithm that was meant to screen resumes and determine hiring outcomes. But the past 10 years of data that I was trained on was very heavily male skewed because the company and especially the technical roles are heavily male skewed and how maybe if a woman had been on the team just deciding how the algorithm was functioning, they would have recognized of maybe quicker or have been able to put um, more things in place to ensure that women were getting fair treatment in this algorithm, which it was shown to be biased against women. So I think that was an awesome point is just to make sure you have many different viewpoints in the room to begin with so that these issues don't develop further. So, Do you worry that the onus for solving some of these challenges, these sort of ethical dilemmas on AI and ethics, do you worry that that onus falls more on women and people of color? Because ultimately they are the ones that are bearing the brunt of it. Um, and are having to integrate into these male dominated and non-diverse teams to bring this kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's sort of an interesting dilemma that is the people who are now hurt by it the most are the ones that have to change it. So uh, of course the responsibility should fall on everyone. Um, that's the ideal world where everyone is is capable of feeling empathy for those who are not them, for maybe if you're a, um, a white male, for having empathy for those in the, the, the group that the facial recognition algorithm cannot detect. But if it's working fine for you, you might not even be aware, like you might have actually no idea. So, so I guess the, the, that's a complicated answer, I would say it's, it's often going to fall upon those in minority groups and those who are being excluded to voice their, um, to voice the bias and the unfairness that's presented against them. But it should really fall upon those who have the power in the first place and who are coding the algorithm and who have the advantages um, and who work within the companies to be aware before they voice that. And, and it's okay if maybe they they don't notice it at first because it, it may be hidden. But um, I think one piece that um, Joy brings up in the Algorithmic Justice League and other researchers is just having a clear way for those who are by or who are harmed by algorithms or technology to have a clear line of communication and feedback so that the developers can immediately see the issue. So. So if let's say the facial recognition um, bias system like has a clear place where you can say, it just labeled me as a male when I'm actually a female, like, can you fix this? And like for the common user to just- Yeah, for the common user to be 
providing feedback, um, I think that could be a great way to kind of give voice to those people who may, may not be in the room um, and, and fix the issues quicker and notice them quicker. Yeah. And this seems in line with sort of the current conversation that we're kind of having now around diversity in the workplace. Um, and you know, there's this notion that, you know, you create more diverse teams, you have a better company, a more dynamic company and better products. But in the case of, you know, that often, I mean, I'm sure there's research to support that, but that often feels like something more theoretical than practical. Mm -hmm. But like, if you look at the facial recognition piece or the voice recognition piece that your students brought up, Mm-hmm. you see you are actually creating better products, more inclusive products that can attract a larger market mm-hmm. by doing these, be- by, by having um, a more diverse workforce and by encouraging feedback from a more diverse pool altogether. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels very much like um, part of this conversation we're all having and I think it's especially interesting to be doing this with um, students that are in Africa. So in this case, in Ivory Coast and in Morocco, and of course, in the U.S., um, all with very different experiences um, and different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, all women. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. For them to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think, because again, an underpinning of why this is such an issue is that businesses are driven by profit. And so they often may not realize um, the ethical part, but if it's actually related to their profits as well as if if their algorithm is more inclusive, then more people can use it. I think that's an awesome point. Um, And one thing that I'm thinking to to add to that is, is there's a shift in culture now too. And that shift is that consumers are standing up for their rights. So during the BLM movement recently, we saw a lot of companies have ugly inside information, like ugly truths about racism within their companies come to light. And I saw on the consumer side during um, the BLM uh, movement earlier this spring that the companies who had these more racist internal truths shown to the public, a lot of their consumers were holding them accountable for that and saying, we want to see progress or else we will not be purchasing from your brand or we want to see um, X, Y, Z. And now the businesses are are responding in a way that I, I hadn't seen before. Maybe I just wasn't aware, but I, I think that there's a real shift in culture of the consumer having more of a voice. So even if the girls in Morocco, Ivory Coast, US, all of our participants, if they end up pursuing a different path and don't end up on the the decision-making table of the algorithm side, they can still be the consumer and engaging with their world in in a different way just by being outspoken and asking for things and and talking about it with others and sharing it on social media um, and just having like that mind frame. And it doesn't have to be, they don't have to be the ones at the company. They can be, they can be anywhere in the world and still making a difference i think in this space so yeah and and on that note you also left with with the program you left the door open at the end to sort of discuss a lot of professional development related topics so yeah i guess my my first question to you generally is 
you know, what advice would you give to an American young woman who is considering pursuing um, a STEM-focused education in the U.S.? And, I, and I'd also really like to hear what specific questions they asked you yeah. um, in your class um, and how mm-hmm. you responded. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah, so I think their questions got almost exactly into your question, which is um, what advice do I have for those pursuing STEM? And um, so some of those questions were uh, advice to get into MIT, such a uh, STEM-focused school, and how did I balance the STEM major and the intensity that that brings with a humanities major, since I was a double major um, with STEM and philosophy. And so that was another great question. And then um, how to deal with stress uh, was another one, how to deal with stress of classes and and college and all of that entails. So for for these answers, I think for the first one, how how did I recommend like getting into MIT or or just like going down that path? I, I think the biggest answer I had for them there was do what you love as cliche as it sounds it's so true I I never actually in high school was like I only want to go to MIT like this is my dream this is my goal and for some people that is but for me it was just doing what I loved which was math as I said it I told them it it just felt like a puzzle and almost like a game Um, it was fun and and I love tutoring because I I love just connecting with um, people who I feel that I can help and helping them grow through their own um, challenges. And so I think I was just doing things that I loved and, and that ended up being something that MIT valued. And so I, I, I describe this as like a sideways approach of applying. And I mentioned, I saw that in an MIT admissions blog in high school um, as well. And so the advice from MIT admissions blog was just as well, do what you love and, and then just apply. And maybe it's like, a, instead of aiming directly at MIT, just aim at what you love and then you'll sideways hop in <laughs> maybe um, if, if you're accepted. Um, but again, if you're not accepted exactly to your dream school, you still have done what you loved. And so that's kind of the, the thesis is that you can't lose. Um, and so their other questions were balancing a STEM major with humanities, a humanities major. And I think for that one, um, I mentioned it, it provided me a lot of balance and it was a really nice um, kind of break, but also way to exercise other parts of my brain and and to connect the two. So cognitive science connects with philosophy as in AI and ethics. That's an exact connection of the two, my two interests. So I think that um, it was really, really positive for me. It, it never really added extra stress. It was just, um, it was only a benefit in my experience. Um, and then how to deal with stress, I was saying self-care, definitely. I, I My first two years at MIT was doing a like studying only like I would forget to shower sometimes I wouldn't go out with friends I would be spending like hours and hours and hours straight and and I ended up that that didn't be uh that wasn't as um I guess it didn't promote a culture of success as much as basically just taking time for myself um exercising having dinners with friends and putting in breaks for my mental health so that was some advice I gave to them but um I think being a woman in STEM in general that was another piece that they brought up and as well as you brought up and I think um for me I I, it's weird I I don't always 
notice that I'm the only woman in the room, um, but it's been often that I am. And um, I also have worked in business and finance specifically where it's similarly very male dominated. Um, and I, I think it's just having confidence in yourself and your ideas and, and doing what you love. And I, I, as cliche as that sounds, again, I think that gives you the confidence to speak up. That gives you the confidence to say, this is my idea. Like, I'm really interested in it. I spent a lot of time on it. Like, you should listen to me because, because, I, because I love what I'm talking about. Um, and that's, I feel like, where I'm drawing my confidence is just genuine interest in what I'm doing. And um, it is really nice when when other females are working in your space, but that's not always the case, but just maintaining like your own inner confidence in what you're doing, I think is going to be the number one factor. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Mercedes. I think we'll close it there. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much to Mercedes Riley for taking the time to talk with us and Rahul Ramakrishnan for submitting his segment. We hope to include more students in the production of Misty Radio. If you are a student interested in talking about your Misty experience, please email misti-podcast at mit.edu. Misty Radio is a project from MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is produced in collaboration with me, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, Ari Jakobowicz, Eduardo Rivera, Justin Leahy, Marco de Paula, Noreen Das, and Rosabelli Coelho Quesar. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close out with the song Tocada, a bossa nova track by Brazilian musician Lorindo Almeida. See you next time.